Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Untracing Trauma with Jagazus, our live podcast. And yes, we are live today. Sorry, it's been a couple of weeks. For anyone who's new here, basically, this is just a show what their religious experiences are, or maybe religious experiences weren't. And pretty much, uh, I always say, or I guess I said this description always says that if you don't have a story exactly like these people, that's fine. But what I try to do here is by lifting up different voices, maybe you can see bits and pieces of yourself in their stories and you can take maybe tools that they've used or lessons they've learned around religious trauma and indoctrination and apply it to your life. Uh, so yeah, with all that said, if you would like to join us on Discord to talk more, I do have a Discord and Patreon. Let me go ahead and shout out my patrons, my disciples really quickly. That is Bart, Adele, Amy, Anna S, Arget, Candy B, Carol J, Claire W, Claire G, Cousin Jake, Gina, Goth Barbie, Heather C, Jubilee, Just Cuz, Kat L, Katie Z, Mary M, Modern Day Masquerade, and Froddy Chick just joined this morning. Hello. Thank you all so much. And if Patreon's not your thing, I also just launched YouTube memberships. So I think you should see it on the profile. If I set it up correctly, you can like click membership on the live and join or something. I, I haven't played with it, so let me know. But there's three different levels there and I'm gonna add those perks to Patreon, Patreon to kind of match the levels too. But basically exclusive live streams, we're gonna start playing games on YouTube live, membership chats, I'll follow you back at certain levels. Go check out the perks. Let me know if you want to add anything. Okay, so now all that said, uh, please like the stream as soon as you're in here because that'll help boost it in the algorithm. And if you're listening on a podcast, go ahead and rate, leave a review, do whatever you would like. And we will go on to episode number seven of Untracing Trauma. My guest today is Hillary. Hi, Hillary. How are Hi. You? If you do not follow her, she's amazing. I don't know. You need to, because like you are so uh, unabashedly unashamed and direct, and it's so refreshing to see. Can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce uh, to the audience? Yeah, so I am the internet's most famous anthropologist and prolific Twitter troll. So I'm a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia. I'm sort of like my career, my career tra trajectory is like Jordan Peterson, but not a shithead. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, why do you want to be him? Okay, not a shithead. Got it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm a PhD candidate. Uh, I'm an anthropologist. I'm in the anthropology program at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, uh, even though I live in Toronto. And yeah, I'm on Twitter and TikTok and uh, YouTube talking about um, primarily drug policy and psychedelics and sort of consciousness alteration and, and uh, cognitive liberation ending the war on drugs and uh, anti-capitalism. Yeah, so doing a lot of sort of organizing. And my main thing is making sure that people understand the power that they have, the power that we have. Uh, we all hate everything, like all of the, all the stuff, you know, the stuff that's going on in the world. It's bad. This is mostly bad. Um, but we don't have to just sit there and take it. We can actually, uh, we can actually do things and yeah. organizing with our fellow working class people is really rewarding um, and fun. That's awesome. So we were just talking like right before we came in here. So you're from Canada. I think that's probably important uh, for the people to know because we are like 
brother sister countries but at the same time we're kind of different in the way that we've evolved uh we kind of started in the same terrible place like you said colonialism affects every country it touches but yeah if the, U- if the u.s is like the really destructive violent brother canada is like this shitty sneaky sister that looks like i'm doing nothing wrong but is actually like just destroying uh you know fair I like that. I feel like in America, we sometimes have a romanticized version of what Canada is. And we're like, everyone's so nice and polite. And the government just wants to help. Just because we've been so um, abused in our relationship with the United States that everything looks golden. It's better. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's better. better. But, but it's, it's this, a lot of skeletons in the closet and 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 violence. And, and it's been know. taking notes from our government. I've been watching as they're like, oh, we should do that here. So let us go into, I guess, your story, like how you formed. You, you turned into this like advocate, radical person. Um, where did Hillary begin? So let's say... Were you were you religious growing up? Were you born into a religious family? Uh, what did your early life look like in regards to that? So I was uh, raised just sort of generic white Canadian, but my my background is uh, Irish and Italian, which means Catholic, yeah. big time. So both sides of the family were Catholic, and I was raised in a sort of sort of Catholic environment. It wasn't really intense. Um, I didn't find out until much later that my dad, you know, so my dad did, never came to church with us. My mom would bring us to church and and we would ask my dad, why don't you come to church with us? And he would say, oh, I'm, I'm going to start going to church as soon as they let women be priests. Ooh. And my naive dad. ass when I was a kid was like, no, but the, I, I thought that he meant, oh, so that'll be like a couple months from now. You know, <laughs> but he was, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. They're pr- that's probably in the works. So. Right. And I didn't realize that was his way of saying, like, never. That's funny. But, uh, yeah, my parents both went to Catholic school. I, I was, was going to say, was your dad raised Catholic, or was this, like, something he was doing for your mom? Uh, my dad was raised Catholic. Uh, he did not have those beliefs anymore by the time I was a kid, but um, mm-hmm. just kind of was like, whatever. Yeah. Here's the interesting thing, though. I, because I went to a French school, like a French immersion school, which is a thing in Canada, you can go to like, you know, special French classes and you can have all your classes in French. Because of that, I wasn't able to go to a Catholic school that I would have, I would have otherwise. And me and four other kids from my French school, because we weren't able to go to the Catholic school and get like the Catholic indoctrination, the lessons and everything that you need in order to get confirmed as a Catholic. The whole catechism stuff. Yeah, we didn't have that. And so instead, uh, our parents put us in private Catholic lessons once a week. One of my like extracurriculars was was Catholic lessons. It was like the Catholic school, you know, curriculum, but like once a week with our parents. And I don't know if you have any other questions I can, we can talk about that. Oh, before. I mean, we'll be jumping in and out of it. I'm just listening for right now, but okay. Okay. Following. I think I, okay. I'm so naive when it comes to Catholic stuff. It's kind of funny because I mean, obviously I have this entire channel, but um, I'm always like, I don't understand the steps of confirmation or what age that happens at. And I'm always like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's so uh, Catholics have a lot of like rites of passage. And so there's, if I can remember, I'm vaguely remembering all of my upbringing, if anyone's in the in the chat uh, of this live, they can correct me. We're uh, in the comments on this. There's something like five stages that you have to go through in order to like get into heaven or to just be a good Catholic. And one is um, being baptized. So you have to get baptized when you're a baby. One is first first communion. You know, the first time you like eat 
Jesus's flesh and drinks right. blood, which is so normal when you're a Catholic. And then on hindsight, you're like, okay. It's so normal in evangelical Christianity too. So Cannibalism, just straight up cannibalism. <laughs> cool. And then the third step is confirmation. So that's when you've gone through all the lessons and you've learned all the Catholic, whatever the values and, and lessons that you're supposed to be imparted and you get confirmed as it. So it's kind of like a bar or bat. So you did do like the baptism part and you did first communion, but yeah. you stopped at the confirmation. No, I was confirmed. Oh. So, uh, yeah. So it's, you get that done when you're, yeah, it's about 13, 14. So it's like a, it's like a bar yeah. mitzvah or bat mitzvah, except you don't right. get a cool party and it's like, yeah, uh, you do it kind of all, like all your whole class at once. Got it. And then the next rite of passage is marriage. Opposite As sex it so marriage. often is. Yeah, you got it. You have to do that. That's a rite of passage or you just don't get to, you know, be a person. And it has to be in the church. I know that. It has yeah. to be in the Catholic church. Okay. Yeah. And then I think that, I think the next one after that is just, uh, you have to get your, uh, before you die, a priest is supposed to come and give you like your last, last rites. Okay. Yeah. Followed. So, I got through step one and two and okay. between those two steps, I had to go get private lessons. But so here's the interesting thing. And this is why I think the story is interesting. The people who were going to the, like the kids were going to the Catholic school nearby that I would have gone to, but didn't because I was learning French instead. They were getting the same, ostensibly the same education that I was in my private lessons. Um, obviously it would have been like a little more comprehensive yeah. in the day-to-day they're in those schools um because there's a lot of catholic schools in ontario because fucked up thing they they're all like publicly funded also um really yeah, tons of people go to catholic schools in is ontario. it public like are yes. they public catholic schools or are they still privatized in terms of you have to pay for tuition no they're they're free but really? like i yeah i'm pretty sure i'm not i'm not totally sure but yeah it's like it's like a separate system that is at least partially funded by the government. Maybe there's some tuition. Like a um, subsidy kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and people hate it, but the, the system has been entrenched for so long. There's so many of these schools that it's like people just go to the school, they wear the stupid uniform, they just like, you know, yeah. whatever. They're just it's it's not really considered to be like a very you don't have to be Catholic to go to those schools. My um, dad was raised Jewish and he literally went to Catholic school for like five years because right. it was the like posh thing to do in LA. Right. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> the only like private schools at the time probably were like Catholic. So <laughs> yeah, yeah they've, yeah, they've got their fingers in a lot of pots. Um, and especially <laughs> in Canada, the Catholic school system, like the Catholics were the ones who set up a, a, a majority of the, the school systems back in the 1800s. And that's why they ran the residential schools. I was just gonna say um, residential schools are here in America as well. But like, definitely in Canada has a yeah. terrifying so if anyone. History. Yeah, if anyone hasn't heard of the residential school system in Canada, this is one of those things where like you learn about it and you're like, oh yeah, Canada has this like really nice supposed, you know, front that we put up to the world that we're just peaceful and nice and it's actually underneath. <laughs> oh, like a horror like the yeah. most horrifying. You can't even like so uh content warning for what I'm about to say if you're sensitive to issues involving dead children, which I am. Usually I turn away when that stuff just the next minute or so. The Catholic schools in Canada were set up as residential schools for the indigenous people uh, who lived here, still live here, but um, there were way more of them. But as a part of the colonization project, um, they forced every indigenous child to go to these schools, like stole them from their parents at, you know, gunpoint in a lot of cases, or like coerce the parents. Like they, they basically had to. They bought um, some of them. Yeah. Stole, stole all these kids, put them into schools. And the entire intention of the school was kill the Indian to save the man. 
And so it was basically, they knew, you know, I'm an anthropologist. We know how important culture and language is to the continuation of uh, traditions and, you know, community and, and uh, culture and family. And so they intentionally separated these kids from their, their parents and their families and communities. They made them learn English. They got rid, you know, they indoctrinated them into Catholicism. Thousands of them died. We're talking, they are still finding, and in the last few years, they've been doing more excavations outside these schools. These schools would have graveyards of hundreds of dead children from stolen from indigenous communities because the conditions were horrible and they were abused and they were neglected and like starved. Literally the reason why we have the food pyramid is because they would reduce their food intake and different kind of nutritional levels per child to experiment what's the minimum amount of calories somebody needs to survive or what's the minimum amount of vitamin C somebody needs before they get scurvy. And so they were testing and withholding food from these kids that they kidnapped and were forcing to not speak their language and trying to convert religiously. And then what happens when you starve children? Some of them die, obviously, let alone the abuse cases that straight up were just a physical abuse. It's, it's, it's gross. It's bad. I didn't know that about the food pyramid thing, but I'm not surprised. Yeah. As always, so many medical advancements on the backs of Black and Indigenous people. Anyways... Uh, I won't keep talking about that because we're trying mm-hmm. not, this is. Okay, back to you. So there's a history on Canada, everyone. Yeah. Trigger warning over for that part of it. <laughs> yeah, but just if you if you are interested in uh, like demystifying what Canada actually is, that's that's what we're based on. And there's still people in Canada who deny it. There's like tons of genocide deniers that uh, are around and, and like writing columns in mainstream newspapers. Anyways, so I went to, I didn't go to the Catholic school. And right. so what I think is interesting about the way that I was raised, and I think that, you know, we we can talk about the, the trauma and the bad stuff and everything, but like, how do we prevent this stuff from continuing to happen? Well, obviously these are structural issues that are very deeply entangled and entrenched and it's going to be difficult, but I think that the dynamic that I that allowed me to escape my indoctrina- indoctrination, not that, that my parents tried that hard, but, yeah, um, but still church but in general is trying to force ideas. Even if you're Yeah, parents. I think it's instructive because what happened was everybody else. So picture you're in like a Catholic school classroom and you're getting your lesson from the nun or whatever. It's usually like nuns who are teaching those classes. And um, you're all having to sit forward. You have to like keep your mouth shut. Like it's like a school, you know, you have to just, you can't be arguing with the teacher. You're kept in line. There's 30 of you in the class. For my private religion lessons, it was me, three friends, and one of our parents sitting at a table in one of our home. So because I didn't grow up in a fundamentalist community where like, you know, not that there was no, uh, like hitting of kids, but like, it wouldn't have happened in this kind of situation. And we were, you know, like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. It was a different power dynamic, right? So we're in a circle. We're not all facing this authority figure. The authority figure is on the same level as us. They're sitting at a table. It's like our parents who we already kind of, you know, inherently don't, don't respect as much as (laughs) like a teacher in that kind of, context because we're like at home it's and a different kind of authority yeah. yeah what it did was it made it a more egalitarian setting and it allowed us mm. to ask questions and that is the primary thing that religion and you know this better than i do the <laughs> main thing that the way that religious indoctrination works and you can speak to this is you are not allowed to ask questions that's it that's how they keep you and if you do you get shamed away like you're not supposed to question God. Is that doubting? Are you doubting? Are you filled with doubt? Are you lukewarm? Are you going to hell? 
Yeah, no, questions are huge. And so if you're not allowed to ask questions or you have questions and you're told, like, just just stop asking those or don't ask them, then that's that's the core of indoctrination is not right. being allowed to ask questions. And we did ask questions because we would we kind of outnumbered them and we would just and they just, you know, they were kind of they just weren't as like authoritarian about it. Um, right. We did have one of the one of the our teacher, professor, parents we would we were like more afraid of him because he was very authoritative. He was super like nice also, but he was just like he was he was a lawyer, so he was like he just kind of knew how to command command sure. the space. Sure. But the other parents just didn't stand a chance. Like there were just too many holes for us to poke. And so did they they rotated like who was like talking every, that week or who was teaching? Was yeah, every like, four months or something, it would be a different kid's parent. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, but were you still going to like mass or like the quote unquote proper church at that time? Yeah. So I like... would go to I would go <laughs> I would go to church every Sunday. Once I started being old enough to kind of put up a fight, the reason <laughs> I kept going was because <laughs> this is like a, also a very Canadian thing. Every every other week that you would go to church, uh, they had free donuts in the basement from Tim Hortons, which is like a traditional. I've heard thing. about it. Yeah. <laughs> And I could never keep track of it when I was little. So I didn't know when I was going to get a donut or not. So it was like, <laughs> it was like that, like intermittent reward stuff. It was like. They knew what they were doing. They got you there. And they kept. So that was, let's kind of talk about that. So it makes it sound like this is when you were a teenager. You said you were still showing up for the donuts. That means that you're already mentally out. Like you were checked out, but you were still showing up in person. So you had the whole physically in, mentally out thing going. What, yeah, what led so, to that disconnect? Yeah, I mean, the truth is that I never felt the presence of the God that I was told about, like, in my heart. I would sit there at Mass and try. Like, I would, like, look up at this wooden seal. It's a beautiful church. I'd look up at it. And I was also lucky, by the way, um, in that uh, the priest at my church was really nice. He was one of the few good ones. He was a really good guy. Never laid a yeah. hand on anybody, thank God. And he was, and so what, what, his, what made him different is he, um, he did missions in uh, Brazil and he was one of those religious people because they're out there. There's plenty of them who genuinely believed in like the teachings of Jesus as like do kindness to others, you know, like right. he, every time he would have a sermon, it would be about taking care of the poor, being kind, being a good person, which I hear is not what evangelicals are learning. No. <laughs> evangelicals just focus on paul for the most part and it's like you know the world is against you on paul so like all the romans and oh. Corinthians and hebrews being like the world is against you you are persecuted because you are chosen you're the new israelites <laughs> like they're yeah they're focused on everything else but okay. jesus <laughs> they like jesus because he saves them. They could care less what he did or does or says. As long as they're saved by Jesus, that's the part they like. Yeah. Right. It's very Trumpian. And I speak for all evangelicals, obviously. All 100%. Yep. All Christians. <laughs> before the comments come. Every Christian. <laughs> um, I There was a lot of, so like in Catholicism, there's a lot of like ritual. There's a lot of like, it's all the masses. That's the part I like. It's very insane. theatrical. I love it. Yeah, it's like it's very neat. tied to the ancient centuries you know it feels like it's an actual practice I, yeah I it's flamboyant it's there's yeah. the choir and and everything but it's also just the truth is that when you're a kid it's also just boring oh my god i bet 
<laughs> um, I used to the the other way that I would go is I would I would read anamorph books like I would, I would my mom let me read because it would get me to go so you know I, the the experience wasn't that bad I just never really bought into you're it. you're never I, hooked you were just like there yeah it was just yeah. like because I, I didn't I you know I I was listening to what I was supposed to and trying to like feel God in my heart or whatever and I'd just be like I would talk to him people say mm-hmm. like if you talk to God he will answer you. And I'm like, he's not saying shit. Like, it's mm. just, I'm talking to the ceiling. I'm not getting anything back. Like, I, and sure. cause it's pretty vague when you're a kid. Like it's, are am I supposed to hear something? And this yeah, is you're expecting like, like a grand vision, like Jesus to show up in shining light and be like, hi, Hillary. Yeah. I think maybe it's because I'm like neurodivergent. I'm like definitely wildly ADHD. There is uncertainty as to whether I might also be autistic. And I just, I, I just, if they tell me it's supposed to be a certain way and it's not that way, then I, I, I'm not buying it, even though mm-hmm. I tried. Mm-hmm. And so I, for about six months after I was confirmed, so you, I got the confirmation, you get to choose a name. I, ironically, I chose the name Faith. You get to choose a name? Yeah, it's like a like Catholic name. It's you. You pick a saint, and they're like your patron saint. I yeah, I chose yeah. Faith, and it's ironic because I immediately lost it. But the reason I chose it was because of Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. So that's how you know you're a dedicated Catholic when you're basing yeah. your Catholic name off of Buffy. You know you're in it. So I think one of the interesting things you said is that the priest was nice, but more so that the priest was focused on say Jesus, his words and works. Do you think part of the reason why maybe you're able to escape the indoctrination wasn't just the fact that you were allowed to ask questions and kind of absorb teachings on your own? But I wonder, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I wonder if he wasn't all fire and brimstone. I wonder if the focus of him trying to help people as compared to always preaching about damnation and how you're doomed had a big part to do with why you weren't convinced or why you weren't that's that's quite possible i mean i don't i can't speak for other catholics but like hell is not something that came up like almost ever it just was yeah so that's that's really interesting so is that like a big part of i feel like it would be in the deconstruction community i hear a lot of stories and i i've done you know like a series on hail hail I did a series on hell um, and the comments that I always get are like, you know, you just undid 20 plus years of trauma for me with this one video. But the stories that I've had and the stories of like some of my peers around me is like the memories of being like six, seven years old and staying up at night and like crying out Mm -hmm. of fear that you're either going to die in your sleep and go to hell or there's no way maybe you committed the unforgivable sin of blasphemy and the reasons why you're going to church is now pointless because you've already doubted God and now you're going to forever be banished. Like, uh, there's a lot of hell anxiety even after people deconstruct. I talk to a lot of people who are atheists even who still have hell anxiety and they don't believe in hell. Yeah, I think there's a lot of focus, especially on the evangelical side, just on punishment and pain. (laughs) Um, So it's interesting to see you escaped that. And I feel like if a lot of people had that removed, would they still be tied to the religion if they weren't afraid of leaving it? Well, that's the question. And I think we know the answer. Guess who else knows the answer to that is evangelicals. That's, they know. Oh, I mean, they use hell as a tool. Like it's a marketing (laughs) tool for sure. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, um, it's it's child abuse. It's rampant child abuse to make it to make a child fear for their their safety in order to keep them in line is is like unambiguously child abuse and it's so rampant and on top of the actual physical child abuse that happens frequently in those households and yeah that's really interesting I yeah I think certainly credit to my dad I think seeing my dad be I think he just he was very hands off and he was being respectful of my mom's desire to to you know and for my mom it was all about community and right. you know it's just culture and, and heritage and whatnot right. so he was pretty hands off but also I could I could just see the skepticism in him and just being able to have somebody in your in your life expressing skepticism of these things is goes a long way gives but you yeah, permission no, to question things of, for sure. Yeah, certainly when I was there, my feelings were like the affects that were given to me by the the circumstance were an appreciation of music, Mm. boredom, just (laughs) boredom, Um, sometimes interest. Okay. Fear. No, I don't think fear came up. So that's really interesting because, yeah, certainly, you know, and I'm a parent now, too. I have two children and the difference between authoritarian parenting and non-authoritarian parenting where you don't use fear threats coercion to keep your kids in line i mean it's kind of insane to me that people do that because like i i I wonder whether it's even effective but i know that it's just it's so rampant in the culture yeah um i don't think it's effective but but it it just causes kids to rebel later and they rebel exactly and like when i am trying to do things with my kids you know the gentle parenting techniques of like if i have to say no or put down a boundary um, you put down the boundary and then the steps two and three are you tell them uh, why and you give them an alternative. And if you don't do steps two and three and all you do is say no, then they're just going to be like upset with you and confused and resentful as to why you're not treating them like a human being worthy, worthy of communicating with. Exactly. And I think you can relate that back to most religious experiences, uh, I would say, where there's, again, here is the you're going to do it this way. This is the doctrine you believe. Sometimes you get a why, sometimes you don't. But as soon as, like you said, there's a question or a boundary in place, it's because God said so. Just like a parent would be like, because I said so. No explanation. It's just God's ways are bigger than ours. I'm not going to tell you why, but this is what you yeah. can do. Um, and again, because if they if they start asking why and start thinking about why, the whole thing falls apart. So. Hmm. Yeah, it's very patriarchal and it's very just, yeah, it's, it's cult-like behavior where you just can't question it, can't uh, go into those things because it, it, and I know that like, it can, like the, the process of, of deconstructing and, and losing faith is very, very painful for a lot of people. Like I do, I do a lot of work on like psychedelics and, and, and healing. And I do psychedelic consultations for people who are like starting to, to use psychedelics for healing. And I've been actually surprised at how many uh, people that I've worked with um, are using psychedelics to deal with religious trauma. Wow. To try to like figure out how to maintain their spirituality and their connection to the either their belief in a God or a higher power in the face of like losing their connection to the specific beliefs that they grew up in because those are sure. traumatic. Yeah. Um, and it's so formative for a lot of people, especially because it's uh, dealing with indoctrination of children for example so like that's like your bone structure it's something that's built into you and it can be very i I don't want to well i mean yeah it can be confusing to try to try to break away from that because you're like wait is this me or is this what i was told is this me or what i was told and it causes a lot of trauma i can see how psychedelics might help with that being able to form new neural pathways to break out of that structure you've been forced to build 
Yeah, um, absolutely. When you so you after teenagers, you're getting donuts. <laughs> after teenage years, getting donuts. Uh, when was did you just kind of casually fall out of the church, or was there a decision where you're like, I don't want to be Catholic, and then you're like, This is the day I leave. Okay, so yeah, so I. I wore like a cross around my neck for like, I think six months into like high school. I think I thought it was like a special identity I had, you know, like it's like okay. maybe special or something. And then I just started hanging out with a different group of people in high school and they were all just like, so what's that about? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. Here's where it gets embarrassing. And it's embarrassing in hindsight, even though I am grateful for the lessons that I okay. got. It's embarrassing for a reason. embarrassing. embarrassing it's a reason. Okay. So... Richard Dawkins was big around then. Yeah. And he's such a fucking douchebag, like, like transphobic, sure. like, oh, Islamophobic he's... psycho now. But The God oh, Delusion came out. Yeah, there was, this was around that time of, like, that new atheist movement where it was, like, The these... Four Horsemen. And... Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just started getting into that stuff and started thinking critically about things. I think that because my the spirituality, like, the beliefs never really did anything for me. And the whole thing was, like, boring. But I was able to access community outside of it. Like, I could just see my friends at school and, like, still have my family. And, like, it yeah. just wasn't... It wasn't like for some people where like if they leave the church, they're leaving, they're they're cut off from their entire community. Yeah. I didn't have that experience. And I I really just started thinking critically about it and then just kind of being like, uh, this seems this seems dumb. And then <laughs> of course, like the douchebag 17-year-olds that everyone gets to be, I just leaned really hard into being an atheist as my identity and and went into that sort of like religious people are so stupid and like look at all these like sheep following whatever and in hindsight I'm not proud of that um mm -hmm. I don't think I like was super vocal about it but like I yeah I, I certainly felt like I was superior and I'm smarter than all of these people and like you know I watched religious with uh Bill Maher, Bill Maher. <laughs> yeah and like uh Jesus Camp that was I mean oh that was Jesus Camp is traumatizing all over again yeah it's really it's really scary and prescient because that was it came out like a long time ago and now now all of those kids are the ones like making like doing have you the googled them you should google them there's like articles that check in every couple of years. I'm like, where are they now? The Jesus Camp kids. Yeah. Oh. Some of them became very, very alt-right and opened like their own church. And then like probably half of them are atheists now and like do charity work on around like chil children's mental health, etc. Oh, yeah. that's really beautiful. It I went, yeah, like I one or two ways with them. Like and, yeah. She's still very much in. Shit. But her brother is not. Her brother, Levi. Anyways, anyone who's interested in that and has seen the movie, go check it out. Oh, yeah, because Levi was the one who, like, wanted to be a preacher. Yeah, the little, like, rat tail. And yeah. <laughs> I've only seen the movie twice, and it's, like, buried in yeah, here. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's very <laughs> affecting, yeah. Like, content warning for, like religious trauma if anyone watches that but it's very good and anyway so I was just getting into that kind of thing and feeling very smug and superior about my about myself and you know it was you know in hindsight it was good it taught me a lot of critical thinking skills that I use to this day like skepticism and things like that I, I no. I'm very very sad that so many of the thought leaders from that movement, like Ayan Hirsi Ali, and, you know, I read the book Infidel, and I remember, like, the first 40 pages of that book, like, blowing my, just being the most radical thing that I'd ever read. It makes me really sad that, like, 
my critical thinking skills that I developed through that experience, I suppose mixed with my anthropology degree where I learned like, oh, other people live and it's fine. Like there's, a, this is not the only way to do things. And just about ethnocentrism and stuff. It gave me a deep compassion um, for other people. And also just the critical thinking skills that I used to like learn about Marxism. I've, and so many of these people just went alt-right and just became mm. like racist, Islamophobic, you know, mm. I mean, arguably they were Islamophobic from the start. I shouldn't say they became that. I was going to say, yeah, I think they, well, for some of them or a lot of them, they hid behind the whole anti-theist thing where they're like, no, I hate everyone religious. But I, I do definitely watching back some of the older debates, like they hated all religions, but they had a special punchiness towards Islam, you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I wonder why. And and I remember like I being especially sad for Sam Harris because there was a talk that Sam Harris gave at a, like an atheist conference that was really, it, it was really profound for me because he opened up the talk by being like, I'm going to talk about something that's going to make you guys mad. I want to challenge, I want to challenge us as an atheist community to talk about sort of uh, spiritual and mystical experiences. He was talking about experiences hmm. with MDMA and like other psychedelics and like meditation and, and things that are not necessarily rooted in the supernatural, but that we don't really have great explanations for. I mean, we right. know how MDMA works, but just being like, let's make room for this. And he was like, people were like, no, bah, like, and um, so the idea that you can challenge your own community and try to think critically um, is unfortunately something that he doesn't seem to want to do anymore. And I think that's interesting too. So where are we at? Okay, wait, wait, wait. So you you are like vocally, not vocally, you're out and then internally you're thinking you're superior. So you're at that deconstruction stage basically where you're like, I have life figured out. Maybe it's not in deconstruction. Maybe that's just teenagers. Uh, you're like, I know the answers of the world. Yeah. What led you to start, uh, I guess, backing away from that kind of uh, mindset of like there being black and white and opening up to like, oh, the different people have different experiences. Was it just anthropology or was it before that? And that's why you started anthropology. Where do you start so, to reframe? I do think that anthropology was a big part of it. I think that traveling was also a big part of it. Certainly the nail in the coffin for Catholicism for me uh, was, and this actually brings full circle to something that we spoke about earlier. So I was a bit of a, a I had some stuff when I was a teenager. I was a bit of a wayward, wayward teen. Um, I managed to get into university after taking five years to finish high school and because of other trauma stuff. And I was kind of in a phase where I was just like, I'll just do anything. I'll just say yes to stuff. It's fine. And just exploring life and just meeting people. In my second year of university, I hitchhiked from uh, Vancouver, north of Seattle to Toronto. So like across Canada. Yeah. So I don't okay, know. Okay. Brave, but dumb. <laughs> I was with my, I was with my cousin who was a, a guy. So he, Better. you know, it was, it was two I mean, of us. It's Canada. It's not that dangerous. I, I, mean, guess, I guess. If you're an indigenous woman on the, on the highway of tears, it's very fucking dangerous. Or if you're like a woman alone, but we were, sure. you know, two white kids on the main highways, you know, it was, I don't, I don't know, maybe it was dumb, but we were, we were mostly fine. We were fine. Yeah. Uh, we got one really weird, sketchy ride around Alberta. And if there's any Canadians here, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, of course it was in Alberta. Um, <laughs> the Texas of Canada. Um, <laughs> Texas of Canada. The West, in Western Alberta was like super, super nice. But like, <laughs> kind of like Eastern Alberta was like, we got a really weird ride. We had to leave that ride. So you're we traveling, had, you're meeting people. Yeah. So yeah. very specifically... In Northern Ontario, we get picked up by these two sisters and they were indigenous 
sisters native to to the area in northern northern Ontario and so this is like you know there's just forests and very tiny towns up there they mentioned something about their residential school because fun fact the residential schools didn't fully close until the 90s in Canada and so these women were probably in their 50s and they were telling us and they had mentioned something about a residential school and we were like what's that oh and it, they just turned around and looked at us in the backseat and they were like, excuse me. And we were like, what's the residential school? And this alone is indicative of like the level of education that I was, I was getting in the 90s and early 2000s in, in Canada at school. We just didn't learn about it. Maybe there was a, a right. day that they covered it and I skipped that day or something. But you shouldn't be able to skip one day and miss. I didn't hear about it until I was 30 and on TikTok. No, I, like, but I mean, you, it's made, you know, in my kids school, they talk about it all the time. Like there's a, it's an annual thing. Like it's, it's a thing yeah. now. So these two women, these sisters gave me and my cousin, one of the most profound and beautiful gifts anybody has ever given me, which is they took us to the residential school that mm -hmm. they went to. And they were like, we're going to educate these little white pieces of shit. And we <laughs> like, you know, what's a residential school? Like whatever. Yeah. And, uh, no, they were super nice and, uh, they, they showed us about it. And I was just like, the Catholic church did this. Mm. Mm. Yes. Finally seeing like a visual aspect of like, uh, maybe the Catholic church isn't the good guy all the time in history. Yeah. They always said that they were. Wait, 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 what? Yeah, it turns out my priest was an anomaly. And yeah, I know that in my family, there was generational trauma from, a, a, you know, different forms of abuse that were related to Catholic schools. And hmm. it's really deeply entrenched. And I think that generational trauma is a thing that white people amongst ourselves need to talk about and reckon, reckon with more often. Yeah. Because it's a thing and it's often deeply tied to the Catholic Church, to other to other churches, to immigration, to, you know, like my family immigrated because of the Irish potato famine and because of like poverty in, in Sicily mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And so generational trauma is real. But the thing that white people have that, you know, like the people and people who aren't white have a sort of awareness of the roots of their generational trauma in colonialism and they can't just it, well depending on who you are, leaning into whiteness instead as a way to like, you know, heal and move on from that is not available to them. But white people are able to just sort of pretend that none of that happened and just lean into the whiteness that we are offered on a platter as a way of like, right. okay, you know, this is, this is how you escape this. This is, you just lean into it yeah. and then abuse other Repeat groups the status and you'll quo. be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so getting away from that um, involves acknowledging the ways that, that, that generational trauma has existed within our communities. And obviously it's ourselves and then spread out just to yeah. everybody else yeah, via us. But yeah, so that was, that was the nail in the coffin for that. And, but certainly, you know, I was in the, uh, I, I kind of had another deconstruction from my from my atheist phase. That's that's what I was getting at. Is where did you you went to from Catholic ish to atheist? But like you were talking about the whole superiority thing, and I was like, both of those views are very black and white. So where yeah. did you start to open up to like, wait, there's a myriad of cultures. There's a whole bunch of different things. I don't know everything. Was it because of that journey that you're talking about when you're hitchhiking across, or where was um, that separation? Obviously was, nothing happens all at once, but you know. Yeah, what I mean. <laughs> that was, that was sort of like in the, in the religious stuff. Um, but it was certainly, that was like an awakening in terms of like learning about the political context for these things and like the wider, okay. like the, oh, it's not just the church. Cause this was also the government, like this is the Canadian government. Right. So to just 
night, like to the, the people within the atheist sort of movement, new atheism and stuff. I don't know if there's all, all these people are still doing this thing, but you know, the ones who were like, religion is the source of all of the problems in the world, like that kind of attitude. It was like, wait, but no, but this was also the government. But deconstructing my militant atheism started to happen because of my anthropology degree. And because I joined the, uh, I went to the University of Victoria for my undergrad and I joined the like the skeptic society or like whatever. And I remember being in a meeting and one of them kind of like really mocking indigenous medicine. And I I was just like, what are you talking about? Like stuff, like the ingredients that we take in our- I was going to say all medicine is still currently based on indigenous herbal recipes. Yeah. Like it's like, (laughs) where do you think we get the compounds that are separating the compound. Yeah. (laughs) Our medicines. Like it's just- extracted and then put into a pill for profit but like right. the compounds are still and i remember and it just didn't jive with like what i had, had been learning about like oh no the way that other people live they live differently and that's okay and also just stuff about like why are we focusing so much on like female genital mutilation in africa and not like you know this the stuff in our the literal child skulls in our own backyard there's just that doesn't it just didn't make sense to me and i think that was like without having the words for it back then that was my first encounter with the sort of like white supremacist undertones of some of these like new atheist movements where it was just like are is this about critical thinking or is this about white westerners are the Being best the smartest right but but we are just even smarter than the religious white Westerners. Like, what is, what are we doing here? It's using the tools that you're talking about again, that were handed down to white generation to white generation and being like, oh, you know, once that light clicks into thinking you know better, then of course, taking that as a position of power and a position of superiority, because that's the tool set, you know, unless you've decolonized and done the work to really approach the biases and the way that you operate. Of course, you're going to use that as like a domination tool because that's that's what your whiteness does. Yeah. And I, and I do, you know, I obviously think in hindsight, like I was still pretty interested in all this stuff when I was in undergrad, um, even though my my academic interests went more in the uh, drug policy side mm-hmm. because like drugs uh, and psychedelics were so foundational to my to my healing and becoming the person that I am today and like uh, gaining empathy and and all that but my my honors thesis I was in like the honors anthropology program um because I was just a keener who like replaced whatever I was getting my self-esteem from before nowhere with like being a, a overachiever in school um, <laughs> and Relatable. yeah and I did my honors thesis on I did a like we had to do a mock research project like design a research project and it was going to be on interviewing atheist kids from fundamentalist Christian families because I was really interested in, and obviously you uh, could could speak to this as well, the sort of like parallels between um, kids who have to like come out as queer versus kids who come out as atheists. And I had seen yeah. some videos where like people, kids, like, you know, teenagers would like record, like put a camera when they would like come out as, I, I'm sorry, I just don't believe in God to their family. And they'd get like screamed at, like it's very very interesting parallels for sure and the fact that um i've always just been fascinated by i i I don't want to say people who don't realize the parallel but um more so people who don't think about it intrinsically because like they're both called coming out and i think the fact that you come out right there is like that right there should tell you the ties like it's very i don't want to say scary but it could be very scary depending on the family 
Yeah. yeah. And I think it's 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 important to talk about these the parallels because as an antidote to the, you know, oppression Olympics stuff that, that we get on the left sometimes, a really important approach to this kind of thing is like where are the 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 sources of solidarity, the points of 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 overlap. And just being like, oh, you also had this experience with like authoritarian parents, or you also like had to 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 deal with this. You were also kicked out of your house for this. And another one is is drugs. I I have spoken with many of my 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 comrades and colleagues, um, some of whom are queer, but were more afraid to come out as a as a drug user to their parents than they were to come out as gay or or bi. Yeah, because it's it's it depends on what family you're from yeah. like drug, and what drug stigma and what what class even exactly sure. yeah I say and, class but you know what i mean uh, yeah socioeconomic uh, background <laughs> yeah and and just like you know it's 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 criminalized it's stigmatized right. um obviously they're trying to recriminalize queerness too in a lot of places but yeah we didn't even get into all that <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's okay we can we can not talk about that for a little bit it'll be fine yeah. i feel like that's all i talk about all day every day right now because i <laughs> well, mean it's it's, it's very worth talking about. It's very necessary. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's good to take a break and get back to basics for a second. But anyway, so this, this, you know, the, the overlap oh, of the things that we have I in common. So actually we're about 10 minutes away from the hour. So I want to okay. open up to chat. If you have any questions for either Hillary, myself, it could be on some of the topics we talked about or um, anything you've ever seen in my or her videos. But Go ahead and you can type them in the chat. I do have two I wanted to highlight because I, I see two very different interactions in the chat around uh, growing up in Canada. And I think this is interesting. So first we have Heidi, who said, you know, 57 and angry that the truth about residential schools and First Nations and the Indian Act were kept away uh, just from the schooling mm -hmm. or the, what happened here. And then uh, I don't know if I'm saying this right. You win? You win? Um, responded to that and said, you know, as a teacher, you were taught about residential schools and it's always been in the textbooks for Canada. How do we not know? So I find that very interesting. And I wonder if that's like, mm. again, comes down to the schooling system. Do you have any, because you said you also weren't taught. You're in the Heidi camp where there were, was not in your classes. Yeah. And now, like, again, I skipped school a lot when I was in high school. So like, I still... <laughs> It's okay. quite possible that I missed it. But again, I still don't like I, I graduated. I went to m most of my classes like I, I shouldn't have been able to even miss 10 to 20 percent of my classes and just fully not learn about residential schools. Sure. Because um, sure. it was so, like a one packet thing or like a one day little topic. And they moved yeah, on. And so or... maybe it was up to the maybe it was up to the teacher. I think that the way that you teach about residential schools also probably makes a big impact. Because even oh, if yeah. we learn about like, oh, there were these residential schools and like, whatever, they were a thing. Yeah. It's easy to kind of teach that if a teacher chose or if the curriculum isn't explicit enough. I know the curriculum has changed. It would be theoretically easy to teach that in a way that like you're not really teaching it. Like That reminds me of growing up in California in the 90s. If anyone else was a California 90s babe, um, it was very important to the school system to teach missions, um, like actual physical mission, like San Mateo, or like, I can't even think of a mission right now, but because we have them since California was part of Mexico, we have historical mission buildings still up and they're like, you know, sites for history. But uh, the way it was taught to us was 
you know, like you get to pick your favorite mission, like go get an encyclopedia, look up all the different missions in California and then make a 3D model diorama of the mission and then do a little presentation to the class about what the name of the mission is, when it was built, um, maybe who the priest was that oversaw it, like whatever little information about it was. So here they are focused on, I don't want to say celebrating, but learning about missions without ever getting into the fact that Catholics were coming to Mexico, creating missions, and force converting the native Mexican people. Like that was never talked about. We were more like, look how pretty. We made a diorama. I love how this one is brown and made of adobe. And then we had a little lesson about what adobe bricks are. But we didn't talk about how the Mexican natives were forced all day to make bricks for these missions that the white people are for. You know what I mean? So it's definitely how you come at it. Because we learned about it, but we didn't learn about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And there's could be a kind of like both sidesing of it. Like, I think it actually came out that there was like a, a an assignment that was given in a class. And I want to say Alberta, but maybe I'm just scapegoating Alberta. It might have been Saskatchewan or something like that, where it was like, you know, these are residential schools. Name some of the like pros and cons of residential. Like it was something like really bad like that. And it was yeah, so it, it just depends on how it's taught. Um, but I think also there's probably a lot of bullshit like, well, we want to protect kids from like the horrors of the reality of it, which is... That's what they're trying to do now, or at least... denial. Eugene. Ah, okay. Um, no, that's exactly what they're trying to do right now with, you know, African-American history and Black history being like, we're trying to save the children from the traumatizing horrors and they're just wanting to be graphic and play roots all day i don't know what their ideas are but if they care so much about preventing trauma in children maybe they should stop sending black children to fucking prison by the hundreds of thousands maybe that would be a helpful way to prevent some trauma <laughs> but yeah no i mean they that's the thing they hide behind the i don't know the guilt by association i guess like and there's ways, obviously, you know, you've you've been in classes and you know how to teach other people. Um, there's ways to teach things that do not make light of the situation and allow it to be the heavy topic that it is without it being traumatizing. Like, you can well, still come at this... it at an age-appropriate academic level where they understand this was disgusting, but not be like, here, look at this picture of a dead body. Like, there's well, ways to do is... it. <laughs> this is a really interesting thing because I think that there's threads to pull on here related to Puritanism, religious indoctrination, and shame because for so many people, and it, it, it ties into why under capitalism and colonialism, um, there's just like rampant narcissism, hmm. which is a complicated thing um, and a bit of a trending kind of like thing, but I know a lot about it and a big part of it is just like not being able to um, like admit wrongdoing because yeah. it, it, because of the shame that it creates because the shame is it's not a good emotion we sh we shame people too much on the left actually that's another soapbox that I could go on but shame <laughs> is not an emotion that gets people to like understand and 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 you know and do better and so if if these like white Christians in Florida or whatever think that like by critiquing the U S or critiquing any of these things. Um, it's we're trying to shame them and right. like or like blame like white children for you know saying like this is your fault which nobody's doing but you know right um if if it's a shame if they're from a shame-based culture where punishment 
you know, and shame were just an intrinsic part of like how you deal with problems, then of course they're going to be terrified of like having to feel that, like that shame. But if we say like, no, 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 we're like, we're not, we're not saying that you personally were like responsible for colonization. We're saying that these things happened. The results of them are still today and we can do better and nobody has to like feel bad about it it's not about making people feel bad it's about like creating structures that work for all of us which we cannot do if we can't acknowledge what happened yeah i don't even care if people feel bad personally this is my sam harris moment where i'm like i go to the left and i'm like i actually don't Don't think you should be making people feel bad yeah um like you see a nazi punch them come on i don't care uh, <laughs> well, it's not people, so it's they don't count. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, but the thing is that, like, you know, there's there's enemies that are genuinely like we have to fight that are like Nazis, right? That, but somebody who actually holds ideologies that are harmful, as compared to just being Trevor in third grade and he's white. Yeah, yeah. But like, <laughs> the main thing that I do when I so I study my current PhD dissertation project is actually on activism and social change, and like what is effective because even if even if certain people deserve to feel shame, does that help? It doesn't does it convert help? anybody. It just like, isolates them and radicalizes usually. Right, exactly. So it's like even we can want to give in to our instincts to just rage and shame and like make these people feel pain because they deserve it. But does that make our children's lives better on this planet, you know, like, does that help the movement that we actually want? Or is it, are we just giving into like an instinctive sort of vengeance, like this like base The tribalism brain coming out. Yeah, and it's Mm -hmm. like, we have to fight that. We have to be like, okay, if I want to change somebody's mind, they have to feel safe with me because people can't change if they feel unsafe. And if they don't feel safe to be vulnerable and we don't create a space where we're like, yeah, these things happen and it's okay. You can be vulnerable. We're not going to like make you feel like a piece of shit then they can come around to it. But if we're creating yeah. spaces where we're like, you know, Puritan and like you are either like one of us or you're a sinner, mm-hmm. we're not going to get anywhere. Nice tie around back to the religion. I like it. I like it. Um, okay. So I don't really see any other questions, but we're at the hour mark. Um, I mean, we don't have to stop talking. I just <laughs> generally try to like be respectful of your time. I know yeah, you have kids yeah, and it's a weekend and it's chaotic. Yeah. Um, but um, I would I love everything you do. And I want you to be able to like take a moment and promote yourself. Tell anybody if you have any upcoming projects that you want them to know about. Um, obviously like your socials so they can follow oh, you yes. and get to learn more if they're interested yeah. in like like you're saying, um, trauma healing through psychotherapy. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah. So the main, the main place I want people to follow me is on YouTube because I've got 75,000 followers on TikTok, which I did like accidentally during my maternity (laughs) leave because I couldn't just stop working and shut up and like relax for a second. I had to like obsessively scream about capitalism into my phone while I was breastfeeding my baby. Um, But TikTok doesn't pay anybody in Canada. There's no creator fund in Canada. Um, and so I can't, it's not a sustainable like area of like my public education work. So I'm trying to build up my, my YouTube audience. 
I've like built up this huge audience on Twitter and then this huge audience on TikTok. And I'm like, fuck, I got to do it again. I have your link tree in the description so people know. Oh, but also, is your name just the same here on YouTube? Is it at Hillary Yeah, uh, I think I'm like Ketamom on YouTube. Oh, okay. For some reason, Hillary Agra was taken. And I think it's taken by an old defunct account of mine. So it's... <laughs> you can search you for me. yourself out. Yeah, you can search for me. It's like at Ketamom on, on YouTube. Or you can just search for my name. Um, and I'll give you the, the links and stuff, but, um, yeah, this is the other thing that I do, which I'll give you a link to put in the, the description when this is out is if anybody is, um, curious about like psychedelics are a big thing now is, Oh God, I could talk for another million hours about that because that's like a whole episode on its own. Yeah. Well, I mean, I talk about it in my work a lot. It's like psychedelics are wonderful and great, but like, there's a lot of shady shit that's happening and interesting thing that we could actually talk about some other time. Uh, they're already looking at like churches getting access to. So imagine, imagine an evangelical mega church and the, the shit that comes out of there now give everybody mushrooms. Actually, that might be better as long as they're not giving them like LSD. No. I feel no, like no, maybe, no, no. maybe <sighs> it depends on Any... who's on and who's off, I guess. Don't give the pastor. No, I mean, do give the pastor the psychedelics and then see what happens. And <laughs> here's the thing though, there's a, there's a misconception that psychedelics are um, on their own enough to make people like empathetic or. Right. Or and the truth is that cults have been using psychedelics to like manipulate people for, you know, absolutely. absolutely. And to enable like religious fundamentalists, like large scale cults to, to do that is like really dangerous. And scary. well, I think that's, I think that's probably, I don't know how it's working in Canada, but in California, obviously, or not California, but in the United States, there's different levels of a fight to decriminalize drugs. So California is still pretty hoity-toity about things, which is interesting. Like, we're not, we're not Oregon. Like, Oregon passed, you know, um, mushrooms. You will be in about two years, though. I think so as well. I think so as well. I would like to see decriminalization across the board federally, but that's a radical belief, I'm sure. Um, for psychedelics but, specifically, there's billions in venture capital being poured into it right oh now, which no. means that those I that bought shares in a company that is trying to commercialize mushrooms. I have yeah. stocks in those companies. They can't legally make any money and can't make any sales, but they're currently like set up with all the product and all the stuff. They just have to press go. And literally yeah. the stock price keeps going up because everyone's talking about it, but they've never made a sell. Um yeah. What Anyways, I was going to say so, is what they're trying to do here, like in addition to the decriminalized portion, um, like obviously they just kind of got more funding for like medical research for say ketamine and therapy, which is why you see ads all over uh, like Instagram or maybe it's just me because I have depression. <laughs> maybe it's just my algorithm. Um, but well, yeah, that's one of those insane things that like drug companies are allowed to advertise in the U.S. We don't have drug ads. Oh, yeah. No, we have a lot of them. And the yeah. like, why does Instagram know I'm depressed and I'm antidepressants? I don't know, but it does. I always get like, join this new medical study for this new drug and live with us for a week and we'll give you a thousand dollars. Like I get those advertisements, which is It's all connected to your credit cards. If you've ever paid for your meds with your credit card. Oh, uh, that's a good point. That's Yeah. Um. What was I saying? Oh, so what they're trying to do is in addition to like the medical side of it, where they're trying to get and allow funding for actual testing. And then obviously you have the psychotherapy. I would say like there's a small niche thing, like the ones that are clinical are very much just 
ramping up the price of ketamine and just like not really caring because they're like at home treatment kits where they come with a pre-recorded tape of a therapist to guide you through. And I'm like, $3,000 for that? What? Um, the other side of it is they're trying to get ritualized or like uh, legalized in ritual sense. So the way that California first started with marijuana becoming legalized outside of the medical side where we had our medical cards, it was legal to have any tribal or Native American church prescribe or hand out or use marijuana within their sessions. Um, so even though it was not federally recognized, they said that even if they're not on a reservation, it's still a tribal space because it's a religious practice and you can allow marijuana to be in the religion. So there's a lot of people who would go to Native American churches just to buy uh, the marijuana because they didn't want to have a medical license and they didn't want to be registered. But I see the same exact thing happening now with psychedelics, where they're again putting that back onto the tribal churches. I don't want them in any evangelical churches, but I could see it becoming part of like uh, a tribal church and being like, go here, talk to this person. They'll tell you how to take it. They'll administer what strain you need or what different, you know, species. Um, I think that would be fine. I think that's a cool way to approach it. Yeah, I don't like being a party pooper about this stuff, um, but somebody has to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love psychedelics uh, deeply, but they are complicated tools. Um, and they, yeah, they need to be approached with with respect and care. And the fact that um, they're getting monetized mean that that means that that is not going to happen. Yeah. But anyway, the thing I was going to plug is that doing my part for because I did this, I did this for years, sort of like, just within community and stuff. And I recently made it uh, open and it's people have been responding really well is that um, the main thing that you need for a psychedelic experience is not, you know, you don't, there's a lot of these places that are making money off of it by making people like feel like they need to be dependent on a therapist or a guide or, you know, like it's this like kind of guru shit where it's like, yeah. you know, no, you need me to guide you. And like anybody can use psychedelics if you just have the right, um, information and you go about things very carefully. It's just that getting the right information is tricky. And so I do um, journey curation now. I do journey guiding as well for people in the greater Toronto area, but um, I do journey curation, which is where I consult with people so who have access to psychedelics, but are kind of like just nervous and don't know what, how they should use it or what should they, they should think about dosing, all that kind of thing. Um, so I consult with them and, um, just like sort of personalize a, a plan for them to be able to, because like, you know, as, a, as individual needs and individual yeah, and experiences, like also, you don't know what you're overcoming until you can really work through what your end goal is. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people go as, in just diving without an end goal. <laughs> yeah. Which can be, which can be great, but I just, yeah, it's more recreational my thing as, an, therapy, as an educator though. and an organizer is I want to empower people. I want to enable people to like feel confident to, to do things for themselves yeah. because healing yeah. isn't really healing unless you feel like it's coming from yourself. Um, so I just want to like educate people and use like all of my, my knowledge and years and harm reduction and stuff. And so that's, uh, something that's fun that I've been doing that has been, um, supporting my research, my PhD oh, research, because my grant is done. So we'll give that. Very uh, exciting. Wait, what's yeah. your PhD is going to be in anthropology as well or. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm currently doing my field work. I'm like interviewing people. I'm like doing the doing the field work right now. Um, it's 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 neat. It's coming. It's can't on wait to like, call you doctor. Yeah, I know. I can't wait to like be like Doctor Hillary Igro PhD and just like just trolling, you know, various local politicians and <laughs> uh, yeah. Jordan Peterson already blocked me, so 
That is a blessing. You yeah. are very lucky. Uh, don't ever interact with him again. That sounds like a great day. No, but I really okay. like <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to wrap this up. Um, thank you so much again. All of her contacts are in the description. The link tree is there right now. And I'll add some more once I get them from you. You are allowed back anytime. I think we should really actually dive into like what you were saying about um, really approaching different ways of spiritual experiences and psychedelics I, I like to see mm -hmm. how you what you've learned in that regard um just mm -hmm. because it's fitting for the channel topic but yeah. also yeah i'll just have you back on any time and yeah, then i love your work it's so excited to be know. here just like you're a legend you're an icon <laughs> okay i won't say that but um thank you to everyone who's here today i will probably have an episode out next week but i will be gone so i'll be virtually with you in the chat and then um what else was i gonna say like the stream before you leave subscribe all that stuff and memberships are now live i was dumb i put in the emojis and like the special badges that you get when you are a youtube member and set up all the perks and they got approved and apparently you still have to put push live like you still have to push like start and i didn't push start that's why you didn't see them today but it's on my profile if you want to check that out if you have questions or corrections, um, you can email me at jagazas at gmail.com. It's also in my link tree. And I will see you next time. Also, I'm going to have a video out tomorrow that's another long-form video that is unique and original to YouTube and is, like, 20 minutes long. It's not a compilation. And I'm getting I love how, more. like, coming from TikTok, 20 minutes is long-form, like... <laughs> No, I have friends who post three minute long form videos on here. And um, oh I, I've, I've done two of those, but I'm like, that's TikTok has three minutes. Oh, no, I'm out here watching out. like two hour FD signifier videos. That's, me YouTube. too. I'm like, yeah. I, I will watch a five hour debate. Like that's my <laughs> YouTube feed. Anyway, okay. <laughs> much love, everybody. Spread kindness. And I will talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks.